0: Good morning. Happy Sabbath, everyone. Ah, yes, we continue into our BIOS series, and I have the wonderful, wonderful privilege of introducing our BIOS story today. Um, my friend here, Caitlin Lopez, is a speech-language scientist. Her and her husband, Bronson. <laughs> oh, no.
1: I forget that's yeah, his name Yeah, that's sometimes. his name,
0: Bronson. Pono Lopez, who's the, uh, one of the chaplains over at Lacha University campus, have been a part of this community for almost two years. Almost. Almost two years. She's a mom of about one and three-quarters of children. Mm-hmm. And if she rushes off the stage this morning, don't judge her. She's got places to go. <laughs> <laughs> Katie, just before we get started so that everyone kind of gets to know you, um, would you tell us what's your favorite food?
1: Beans and rice. Oh, beans and
0: rice. <laughs> Very good, Southern Californian. Over good, good, good. And um, how about, what's one thing that we generally may not know about Katie Lopez?
1: So I asked Pono right before, because, you know, that's always a strange question. And he said that I have an uncanny ability to name breeds of dogs.
0: Oh. <laughs> there are other
1: dogs I, uh, here. Okay. Yeah, I... <laughs> For those of you who might know this term, it might be a special interest of mine, so. Really?
0: (laughs) Wow. Well, isn't that interesting? Okay. Katie, the time is yours. Let's give Katie a big round of applause.
1: Good morning, Bios. Stories that shape us. Today, I'm going to be talking about other stories and how they've shaped me. And just a caveat before I begin, the things I'm going to be talking about today, I'm not the expert in the room. I am a neurotypical, able-bodied woman. The experts are those who are with us today with the lived experience of disability. Another housekeeping audit item that I'm gonna be talking about, I just did, neurotypical, is I'm gonna make this as simple as I can. There's probably more, but basically, there's two neurotypes that we have, and neurotype refers to how the brain processes. So neurotypical is referring to the neurotype that is kind of everything that we've learned about how brains process, or I should say everything that you've probably learned. It's the textbook stereotypical way that brains process. And then we have neurodiverse or neurodivergent brains, and that is anything that is different Than a neurotypical brain and this is a really big umbrella so this envelopes things like autism adhd mental health differences like anxiety ocd so on and so forth i belong to the camp that both brains are beautiful and valid just so you know all right so my whole life i have been super lucky to have grown up with people with disabilities my uncle was impacted by polio I have a family friend that's just a few years older than me with multiple developmental disabilities. And then there's a family friend that I grew up with that's a few years younger who is now a young man with Down syndrome. And this could have impacted my decision to be a speech-language scientist. All right. So my first few years, oh, and a speech-language scientist is just a fancy way to say I help people communicate. All right, so my first few years into the profession, I found myself getting burnt out. There was a huge disconnect between what I was taught and what I was modeled and what was actually happening. And the connection I so desperately wanted to have with my students. A lot of what was taught to me was behavior management and making my disabled students look more normal. Looking back now, I can see that those things and those focuses are what was causing me to feel so burnt out when really I just thought I made the wrong career choice. So I quit, kind of, because grad school loans are really expensive. And I began working at a church as a family ministries director, while at the same time I started working as an adjunct professor at University of Redlands in their communication sciences and disorders program. And while I was at University of Redlands, I started down this road of deconstruction, primarily because of an amazing professor there whose name is Cindy Weiniger. She just totally flipped everything I knew about autism upside down. Her main focus was all about connection over compliance. And what that means is our main focus is working with autistic individuals is building that connection with them and less about making them conform to whatever it is we think they need to conform to. Uh, And to help them improve their communication in a way that's meaningful to them and not just something that I think they need to do. This is also the first time I heard the term masking. And what masking is, is um, when a neurodivergent person is trying to look or act more neurotypical. And what that might mean is some of the things that I was taught in the past to do is teaching forced eye contact. And what we've learned since then is that can be really painful for an autistic individual. Uh, Maybe forcing autistic individuals to have a back and forth conversation on something they really don't wanna talk about or stopping self-soothing behaviors that we sometimes call stims or stimming behaviors like arm flapping or uh, repetitive movements or repetitive sounds. And so um, Cindy blew my mind because she was like, let those things go and just focus on the connection. And at the same time that this was happening, I started to find autistic adults on social media who were sharing their stories about some of the traumatic experiences that they've undergone with some of these things that they've been taught, like masking who they are or not being accepted for who they are. And they also shared really beneficial things that helped them traverse the neurotypical world. During that time, I realized how ableist my profession could be, maybe fixing some of these things or fixing these people that didn't really need to be fixed Neurodivergent people are expected to live in the neurotypical world, but really, neurotypical people are not expected to enter into the neurodivergent world. And Cindy's philosophy of that connection over the compliance really freed me to enter into that world, or at least attempt to, and get to see how beautiful and colorful it could be. At the same time that I was learning from Cindy, I was getting to know a family that was coming to our clinic uh, to work with our grad students in for speech therapy. One day, the, I was in the observation room and I overheard one of the, the daughter of this family singing Hillsong's Oceans. And after the session was done, as typical, I'd walk out with the family and my grad student, and you know we'd kind of debrief what had happened. And I came out to chat, and I said, oh, I really liked your song. And the mom asked her, what song were you singing? And she said, oh, the church one, and just kept walking down the hall. And the mom stopped and said, what did she say? Her face white, tears welling up in her eyes, and I thought, uh, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know, it's not a big deal. <laughs> um, And then the mom stopped me and she began to tell me their story with tears streaming down her face. Her daughter was a spunky, fun-loving 17-year-old with Down syndrome. Before they had her, she and her husband were super active members in their church. They went on the mission trip every year. They tithed faithfully. They were volunteers in lots of different departments. They sounded like the perfect church members. (laughs) And then after they had their daughter, when she was three years old, they took her to Sunday school and they were told she was no longer welcome. The family was so hurt, they had never stepped back into a church since then and they were feeling that huge void in their lives. Sorry, I still get emotional, you know, seeing this mom's pain and also hearing, you know, the pain in her in her voice. This conversation spurred so many other conversations between myself and family and friends in the disability community. And at that time, because I was working in a church, I said, we can do something about this. And so I really drove, dove down into inclusion research, what the statistics were and what we could do. In 2018, the CDC estimated that 20% of the population has a disability. And as I looked around in my social circles, the places I inhabited, I didn't see that represented in those places. Yes, a lot of disabilities are invisible, but still, I wasn't seeing that. I was missing out on relationships with a whole demographic of people. During my research, I also learned that churches and religious organizations do not have to comply with ADA regulations. ADA was legislation that was signed in 1990, and it is responsible for uh, the dips that we see in curbs, ramps, accessible parking, things like that. But if I can be real, ADA is the bare minimum when it comes to accessibility. So we got to work in our children's ministry to make it more accessible. I began to apply what I had learned in my years of special education, or as I like to call it, accessible education. And we started to just focus on embracing connection and letting go of some of those compliance pieces. And it was awesome. We started to see our Sabbath school teachers become much more confident in working with all of their children, not just the children who showed up who might experience the world differently. And we started to see our kids make true, genuine relationships with children they might not have ever had access to before. One of my favorite experiences was in our kinder classroom. We had one kid with disabilities who, if I'm honest, he stuck out. He wore a helmet, he was loud, he was often doing things that was different than what the other kids were doing. Uh, Let's call him Isaiah. Isaiah was one of my favorites, because you never had to guess what he was thinking. He would tell you, this is awesome, or teacher, this is boring. Or sometimes it was just a grunt, because he was hungry, and it wasn't snack time yet. It's like, I feel you, I feel you. Uh, And then we also had another kid who was coming every week, and we're gonna call him Jaden, and Jaden was all about the justice. Jaden will make an amazing judge, or policeman one day, Uh, fairness and justice was his thing. And as I watched them, Jaden had a really hard time with Isaiah, because Isaiah was kind of gray. He didn't really fit in Jaden's black and white boxes, or his world. During Sabbath school, Jaden took a lot of movement breaks, which meant he was often kind of pacing in the back of the room, but I could tell he was paying attention. It wasn't a big deal to me. And when that would, sorry, sorry. Isaiah, I'm changing their names, and it's really hard for me to keep them straight. Isaiah was the one facing in the back of the room, and when that would happen, Jaden would look to Isaiah, look to me, look to Isaiah, and see what are you gonna do about this? Because it was not what he was supposed to be doing. And just smiled, kept on teaching. One Sabbath, I remember this particular experience seemed to be pretty pivotal in their relationship. I don't totally remember what we were doing, but I had the kids all on the floor and there was a big box and there was marbles and we were surrounding it. And Isaiah just went and grabbed the huge, you know, a huge handful of marbles. And Jaden, teacher. Yes, Jaden, He can't do that. What do you want me to do about it? And the reason why I was asking him these questions is everything we did that year, I wanted the focus to be on connection. Connection for the children to have with God, Connection for the children to have with the volunteers and adults in the room, and also connection for the kids between each other. So I said, what do you want me to do about it? Tell him to stop. He's your friend. You can tell him. So he sheepishly looked at Isaiah and said, can you share? And he just dropped the marbles and said, yeah, like Jaden's world hadn't just crumbled, wasn't this big, traumatic thing. And we just kind of continued going on with what was happening. Over the course of the next few months, I watched Jaden's world open up. There started to be a little bit more space for Isaiah. And I watched Isaiah make a new friend. One Sabbath, Jaden comes walking proudly into the Sabbath school room with his prized sixth birthday party invitations. I don't know that there's anyone more powerful than a six-year-old with birthday invitations or leading a line. So Jaden comes in and yes, he had an invitation for everybody that was in the room that day, but he was so proud to personally invite his friend Isaiah to his birthday party. Proximity matters. For inclusion to work, everyone I mean everyone has to believe that disabled people belong in a space. And whatever that space may be, maybe it's a sports program, dance program, schools, movie theater, grocery store, church, they all have to belong. And I don't think anyone's gonna fight me on that, that disabled people don't belong in church. But what about these statements or beliefs? These are things that I've heard over the years. You are a saint. I don't know how you can work with those children. Or when a child is staring or pointing at a disabled person and the adult in charge of that child says, stop, don't do that. And then they just kind of push them along. And then this last one, every spring, we see these viral social media posts of the popular high school football quarterback Asking the girl with Down syndrome to prom. What messages or statements do these, or excuse me, what messages do these statements or actions convey about the person with disabilities? The first one conveys that these kids are impossible, and if they're impossible, well, then they don't belong. They're not worthy. The second one is a message of shame, that adult is telling that child who's naturally curious, we don't have to worry about them. Ignore them, it's okay. And then this last one is a little tricky, right? We see that and we think, oh man, he's so he was raised right, what a kind boy. But if we start to think about it a little bit deeper, what is it saying about the girl with Down syndrome? Could she not have gotten a date on her own? Does she not belong at prom if someone didn't ask her? These are all examples of ableism. Ableism is the last socially acceptable prejudice because we hear and see these things all the time and no one bats an eye. Pastor Icky defined ableism for us a few weeks ago as the discrimination in favor of able-bodied, neurotypical people. It's this idea that neurotypical, able-bodied people are superior to those with disabilities. I bring up these examples because they helped uncover some biases in my own life that I had toward people with disabilities. And if we don't uncover these biases, then we can't confront them. And if we don't confront them, then we can't create spaces of belonging. So then, how do we do that? How do we create spaces of belonging? Dr. Eric Carter surveyed over 500 young adults with disabilities and their families, And he found these dimensions of belonging. The first one is present or invited. Second is welcomed and befriended. The third is known, cared for, supported. The fourth is accepted and the fifth is needed. As I think about those, I think isn't that something we all need to feel included? In the inclusion disability world, there's a really great metaphor of a party. I can invite you to a party and even ask you to dance, but will you feel like you belong? And so I wanna look through that party metaphor through the lens of these dimensions of belonging. Present and invited. First, are you even invited? Second, are you able to get in the door? Is it accessible for you to enter the building? And then once you're there, are you able to be present or is the noise, the lights, is everything too much or too little when it comes to your sensory needs? And then welcomed and befriended. Do I talk to you once you come in? Do I introduce you to my other friends that are there? Known, cared for and supported. Do I serve food that I know you like and care or can eat? Do I have other details in the party to show that I know you, I care, and I want you to have a good time? And then accepted, do I copy your dance moves that might look different than mine? Or do I just let you sit and enjoy and observe and not force you to dance if you don't want to? And then this last one is needed. Needed is something we often overlook, but I think it's really valuable. With the party metaphor, do I delegate a meaningful task to you? Like if I know you enjoy music, do I ask you to make the playlist? If I know that you are a fantastic baker, do I ask you to bake the cake? To create these spaces, we will all have to give up a little bit of control definitely unlearn some things, and confront our biases. It's not going to be comfortable, but isn't that what good church is? It makes those who are comfortable uncomfortable, and it comforts those who are marginalized. Oh.
0: Would you stand with me as we read from the text? found in the book of Luke, chapter 14. Then Jesus said to him, Someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they, all alike, began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a piece of land and I must go and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have just been married and therefore I cannot come. So the slave returned and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to the slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, Sir, what you ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master said to the slave, Go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. The word of God. love that metaphor about parties, Katie. Thank you for sharing that. And it's a great principle for us as a church to consider. And so this morning, just for a little bit, I want to talk about throwing parties and being welcomed into the party as if it you are a part, an engagement of that, that entity, that that belonging, that group. So here... Jesus has just shared a parable about a, a party, a big event, a gathering, a dinner. And the context is, at the very beginning of chapter 14, Jesus is going to the house of the Pharisees for a Sabbath meal. They're going to eat together, and just as they begin to go, a person with a disability passes by, and he heals this individual with some words towards the Pharisees and the experts who are watching very carefully what Jesus would do on the Sabbath, because it's the Sabbath, Jesus. Don't do anything too radical. Don't do anything too exuberant. Don't sweat. Don't make it look like work, Jesus. We're watching you closely. But to Jesus, this healing was imperative for the experience of the person. And so he goes ahead and heals them. When he gets to the house where the meal is, he notices how everyone has filled in the seats of honor. Everyone came in, and in that cultural context, there are seats of honor, and they pressed towards the seat of honor because that's where they wanted to sit. That's where they wanted to be in order to gain recognition, maybe some accolades for, for who they might be in that village or in that town. And when he gets to that place and he sees this, he's perplexed. Now, we have to believe that Luke inserted the story about the man in the beginning intentionally we have to believe that uh, that he put up there because otherwise we don't hear about this individual again and Jesus had that experience and now he's in a house with a different kind of experience and I think what Luke is doing is he's contrasting the two And what is most important to people. They were worried that he would heal someone on the Sabbath. But they weren't worried about their their need to be uh, approved and to be noticed in the house. Contrasting this were all the guests in the house. As they were preoccupied about getting seats of honor. In the book of Luke, Jesus does a lot of things around food. He tells a lot of parables with food. He's feeding the thousands with food. He's constantly around food in the book of Luke. But here in this particular story, we notice that Jesus is not so preoccupied with the food so much as the composition of the space. He's not so worried about what's being served, but who gets to sit around and get served. And so he begins to share parables with these people the first one was about a wedding the second one is what we take a look at this morning this is the context by which we approach the story verse 13 someone gave a great dinner and invited many now here in the new revised standard version it says a great dinner in the uh, ESV, we see a great banquet. In the Message Bible, we see a great dinner party. So we know that whatever this event was, it was great. It was a good party. It was filling. It was joyous. There was going to be great food, and the people were going to be lavish because this was a great thing. It's going to be a great party. Jesus gave a vision of what the great meal could look like, which was antithetical to the meal they were at in that moment, which wasn't in his implication a great meal. We sit here with a bunch of great people in honored seats, but this meal is not a great meal. And the parable he tells next is about to share what a great meal should look like, how it should be cared for, how it should be intentionally thought of. What is a great meal? Whatever the event was, it was great. Here's my, I only got two points this morning, because I want a Sabbath meal, amen? Amen. Here's my, my first point. God loves to throw great parties. God loves to throw great parties. Oh, we, we hear about them in the book of Leviticus, right? He, he's got all these festivals, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's got the Feast of the Firstfruits, the Feast of the Weeks, the Feast of the Trumpets and the, the Day of Atonement. We've got the Feast of the Tabernacles, the Feast of the Booths. And, and each one of these uh, generally start with a Sabbath and then end with a Sabbath of rest. You know it's a great festivity when you've got to start and end with some rest. Somebody say amen. Oh, you all are Adventists. You don't know how to party, right? You had to rest to get up for that festivity, and you were going to be in a great festivity. The festivity is so great, you needed to rest afterwards because you couldn't go to work the next day. God knows how to throw a great party. Deuteronomy 14, spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink whatever your appetite craves and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household this is not good Adventist theology God knows how to throw a good party Isaiah 25, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make of all people a feast of rich food and a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has money, come, he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price." In other words, when God throws a party, it brings people in who may or may not have money, but they don't need it because in God's party, we are all invited. Wow. We are all invited to God's party. God loves to throw parties. How does this shift our perspective about God when we consider God as the greatest party host of all times, how does it shift the way we think about God? How does it move us away from the traditional idea of a of an angry and, and and exact kind of God that is looking for you to do exactly as God wants? When the picture here across the, the, the Bible is that God is one who throws parties. He celebrates, he festives, all these festivities. What they do is they they bring us uh, to a place, for for, uh, biblically, um, where the people, at least for a moment, don't have to worry about who is is, uh, oppressing them. For that moment, they can remember that everyone should be cared for. There should be equitability. There should be people across the village who come and feel a sense of value. And for that moment, everyone has hope and joy. God loves to throw parties. In Katie's story today she was sharing, she shared that she was burned out and she quit because of what she was taught and modeled. And it it was in, in in a contrast. To how she wanted to connect with her students. It wasn't until someone gave her a different way to see things, her professor who helped her see a different way of seeing things, that turned everything upside down for her and allowed her to feel the richness of her calling again. And I wonder sometimes, um, maybe as a church, have we sifted away the joy of our faith because we have misunderstood what and who God is to us? What if we all saw God... As one who loves to throw parties. This perichorosis, this triune God who dances, who's in an eternal dance of love and goodness and hope and, and calls us to be a part of this dance. We've got a dancing God and a partying God. That's very, it's a weird Adventist kind of a God for us, isn't it? It's kind of weird. Like he would be a bad Adventist, I think. This is an amazing God. We forget how dynamic and beautiful and wondrous, how God's voice thunders into the universe and things exist, how God speaks and life begins, how God's very saliva into the ground raises us to be. We forgot this is the God who in John chapter 3, 17 says, I did not come to condemn this world, but to what? Save it. And if God came to save this world, maybe none of us should be trying to condemn it either. A beautiful God who invites us into the dance, who creates a celebration for the lost son and for the son at home. An amazing God who calls all the universe together to celebrate the coin that was lost in the house, but is now found. God is a God. Who parties well. Does that change the way we begin to think about God? And does that change the way we do church? What if church was a microcosm of this great banquet? What if churches are supposed to be local mini parties. That people when they come here can experience what the great party is going to be like. What if church was a good party? Yeah, we can give that that's all right. We'll keep it kosher. But how does that, how does that change the way we do church then? So the second point in following is really a question that was spurned from Katie's share today. Is the church about connection or about compliance? Do we come here to be taught compliance and steady faithfulness to a dogmatic way and system and institution? Or do we come here that we might connect with the living God? And to connect with our fellow siblings who sit with us and next to us? to connect to a world that is broken outside that we might go and serve as God calls us to serve. Are we called to be compliant or are we called to be connected? Are we called to be compliant or are we called to be connected? What does our church or our mini party tell others about us? What does it look like for someone to visit this church? Do they feel the warmth of this church? Can they tell that there is a great celebration of hope and goodness and equity that is happening here? Or do they come in here and it feels like they have to be compliant? What if they were divergent from us? Is this a place where God touches down and we connect to each other? Or have we just become another mechanism of compliance to tradition And to the way we've always done things. We want to be the kind of place that has a party that connects. This should be a place that doesn't demand that dogmatic loyalty. This should be the kind of place that invites connection and belonging to Jesus. This should be the kind of church that connects me to God who is the great host of parties, of dinners, to my communal siblings and to the needs of our greater world. So in verse 17, at the time of the dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. And those who were supposed to come did not come. One of them even said, Hey, I, I just got married. Blamed it on their partner. You know, that, that that's a timely tradition that has not changed much. <laughs> right? Ah, I would, but you know, I. This guy said, I I just got married. Really? That's your best excuse, bro? It is. But the place was ready. Which means God, who is the host of good things, of the banqueting table, spent time intentionally preparing that space for those who would enter the party. That when they come into that space, they would know that God is there that they would know their sense of value, that they would feel seen, that they will feel belonged, that they would be challenged to leave that place with more joy and goodness overwhelming in their spirit. The inviter had prepared the place. And I believe we must prepare spaces too. This space, this microcosm of the great banquet must be a space that we are intentional about, that we prepare well. So that as we invite others or others come into this place, they may say, wow, I was really connected to Christ there. Wow, the people, they really cared and loved me as I was. This is what it means to prepare space. I, I uh, have some good friends who we've been long, long-time friends. We all went to year University together. We worked in the mission department. And uh, for many years, the, my, the husband of, the, of our friendships was away in Micronesia. And while he was away, his now wife was here. She, in fact, she was a member. She grew up right here in this church, part of the Beloiko clan. And her and I ran a good portion of the missions department, and they weren't dating. They were just friends, and, you know, she'd tell me all the time, man, Icky, he's so annoying, because she's older than he is, right? She's got about three or four years on him, and she's like, oh, he's such annoying. I said, you know what, I think you like him. And she says, no ways. He's like a little brother. Oh, okay, you do like him. I said, it's okay, Shahai, you can like him. She says, no way, I like just, I can't. Ah, oh, he just annoys me all the time. You know, the things he says, we're writing to each other and calling, ah, oh. I said, okay, great, well, well, do your mission work, it's good. He comes home for Christmas to visit, and he's visiting around his friends, and then he comes to my place. We were living on campus at the time, and Shalai showed up. And so we were there, us three, hanging out together, and I thought, man, this is great. These are two people that I love very much. And at the end of our conversation and hanging out, Jesse says, all right, I got to gotta go. It's kind of late. And Shelly says, oh, okay, well, I'll walk you. And I said, well, 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 I don't want you walking alone. Let me walk you too. And Jesse looks at me and he says, no, no, it's cool. That's all right. I said, bro, no, I'm not going to leave you all hanging. No ways. I'm a friend to the end. I'm going to walk you guys. And Jesse kind of looks at me, he's like, no, it's fine, bro, it's okay. I'll be all right, I'll be all right. I said, no, I leave no one behind. I will walk with you. And Jesse's like, okay, cool, yeah, yeah. So they walk out the door, and as they walk out, I just walk right between them. One under each arm. We're walking along, and I'm talking away. Halfway down the, the stretch, that, that, that lawn in the front, I, I sensed it was really awkward between all of us. And I was like, what is that awkward feeling? It's as if I don't belong. <laughs> but I wouldn't let that stop me, so I kept walking them all the way to the car, and it was just all kinds of awkward tension. We get to the car, and I stand there between them. And they said, oh, okay, well, we're, I gotta go. And I said, yeah, yep, well, I'll just wait here until you head out. I don't want you getting hurt or anything. And, and he, says, he says, it's okay, Icky, you can go. And it was at that moment, it was at that moment I realized, yeah, I don't read human beings very well. Because so. <laughs> I was like, "Wait, what's hap- wait, what's going on? And then Jesse kind of like, you know, kind of like took her hand. And I was like, oh, this is very awkward. And then I didn't know what to do, so I just stood there. So they had an awkward hug. And then I just turned around and walked away into the dark. On my way up, I thought, whoa, this is what it must feel like to be a third wheel." This is that awkward moment where nobody wants you around. The tension was thick and heavy. I hope people don't come to church and feel like third wheels. I hope they don't sit in some thick tension because they don't get our lingo or they don't understand our rhythm as Adventists. I hope that when they come in here, they feel like I am a part of this process. Which, by the way, both Jesse and Shell High admit, I'm a part of their process now. Which is weird, but I am. What does that look like for us? To be a community that cuts out the third wheel. That connects with people. You know, you may ask, how, do, how are we doing that intentionally? Because someone asked me just last week, well, what's the vision for the church you wanna, you wanna, do you want to grow and blow out the, the population? Do you, do you want, uh, wh- what about tithe? What projects do you want to do? And I said, this is the one thing I want. What is it? I said, I want people to connect well here. I want when people leave that they say, mm, something deep in me has been reached by the connections of the people I made at this church. If we do that in the next couple years, And we grow in connectedness and kindness and goodness and love. And Jesus is seen in our lives. I will call that the most successful church ever. This is what we are about. How have we done this? We've already begun to do this. We've already begun being intentional about making sure that the party is caring for people. One of the ways we do it is in the greeting. Every time we get you up to hug someone. I know it's awkward and weird. Some of us don't like to be touched. Did you know in the United States that uh, people are, are under-touched? They need more touch in the world, in, in the United States. Did you know that? Yeah. You go all week long. And, and there's just almost 80% of men have an insecurity of being touched, whether, they're, whether it's okay to hug or not. Almost 80%. That's why every time I see you, I hug you. Because I'm going to break that down. I want you to break that down. Hug somebody, it's good. Turn somebody and say, Hug somebody. You may not get attention all week long. We wanna make sure when you come in here, look, you may be greeted or not, but in this space, there will be connection. They say the, the, the number one foundation for connection is touch. I didn't know that until I learned it. We're touching, we're connecting you, we're giving you reasons to connect every week. We have social gatherings. September 10th, we're gonna have a church picnic where you can go and hang out and we'll be together. September 30th, we're having potluck and baptisms. We're inviting our our university students to come join us in the potluck. There'll be a fall festival of some sort, some kind of trunk or treat we're going to do for the kids. We just had a meal last week, a meal and movie. Our ministries, our pathfinders, our adventurers, our 50 and better lunches and gatherings Next week, we'll have sign-ups for volunteers for all of our campus ministries. Next week, Pastor Ben and Pastor Elizabeth are leading out. They're going to have a, a volunteer fair so that you can get connected right here. Connections are important. They're working on basketball and soccer league again for the children. Parents, are you ready for that? It's happening. Small groups, grief share, sewing club, knitting club, Monday ping pong. There's various small group Bible studies. There's divorce care. There's life groups. There's working to bring Sunday basketball back for some of us who like to play ball. There's the Lift Project. Did you hear about the Lift Project earlier? Pastor Raywin talked about what, what we want to do with that is we want you to gather with three of your like your these are people that you love, right? So I'm going to get together with these three or or people that you have common space with during the week, hang out together, and then and then you will be a certified group, those three of you, and then we can add people to your group so that if if there's more, there's more, but if not, at least there's three of you doing some good things together, living life together. Because we want you to be connected. We want our church to have deep connection with God, with each other, and with the world around us. We want to make sure that our party is a good, healthy, and beautiful party. That when individuals come who may be divergent from our typical ways, they would feel like this is a good place, a safe place, a beautiful place. At the end of our time today, yeah, it's me landing in the plane. Good job, Luke, good way to get there. At the end of our time today, um, it's our time for our foster kids birthday cards again. Where we can do more connecting with the world around us. Just about 5,000 foster kids through our county. And every month since I believe maybe May, we have been signing birthday cards for faces you don't see every day. You may not know. But every time you sign a word of encouragement in these cards, it lands in a child's lap with a cookie and a little gift, and they get to be encouraged and inspired to push on in this journey. I sat with Lisa Walker about two weeks ago, and she said, Pastor, I want you to know everyone around here is so grateful for Last Year University Church. Because every time you all get those cards signed and you write encouraging letters, there are kids who receive them. And though you may not see them, they see you. You show up into their lives. You show up through your words. You show up through the encouragement. And it gives them just a little bit more strength to push on. She said, well, at that lunch, she said, just today, I'm working on a case. She said, uh, there was a child who, it's her birthday. It's her birthday, but for whatever reason, her grandmother just couldn't take it anymore. So the grandmother drove, and this is no judgment on the grandmother. I don't know their context or their situation, but whatever pushed that to the edge, the grandmother drove her back to the county office and left her there on her birthday. Lisa said, you know, so we were we were we were we were scrambling, scrambling and scrambling and scrambling. And she says, while that young girl was just sitting in the office, she no longer had a home to go to. You know what she did have? I said, what? She said, she had one of those cookies and those birthday letter from your church. There's some child sitting in an office somewhere who doesn't have a home, but who gets to experience the party that goes down here at the La Sierra University Church. I don't wanna be an institution. I have, no, I have no desire to move through an organization. I, I wanna be a living body for Jesus. And I wanna party well. I want people to come in here and say, wow, these people are loving and amazing and there's some deep thing in them that keeps them girded to Jesus as they want to transform the world around them. That's my calling. And I hope that we take this journey together. As we do, we can help party along with others that they may see the glorious hope and goodness that is only found in Jesus. To Christ. Be one. Well.